Hi everyone, this is Academics Right and my name is Armand Gildas. Today I have the great pleasure of hosting Laura Portwood Stacer. Um, I'm sure many of you already know her. Uh, she, I mean, the most recent work of hers is the book Proposal Book that came out of uh, Princeton University Press last year. Um, and she is, she is Manuscript Works. Um, Without further ado, welcome to our podcast, Laura. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. My pleasure. Um, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your journey? Yeah, sure. So um, I, as you said, I run a business called Manuscript Works, but it's just me. So it's just like a pseudonym almost. Um, <laughs> and I started out seven years ago with that, doing developmental editing of book manuscripts, mostly a little bit of journal articles. Um, and as the business has evolved, you know, as I worked on, you know, dozens of book projects, I started to see one of the sticking points for people is that the publishing process. Um, of course, the writing process is its own thing. Um, but the publishing process was something that really fascinated me. So I decided to dig into that a bit more. And now um, my main um, activity is helping people write book proposals and just kind of navigate the often scary process of reaching out to editors, mm -hmm. um, navigating the peer review and contracts and um, offers and, and all that stuff that we're never really taught anywhere. And we just kind of are thrown mm -hmm. in at the deep end and, and try to make the best decisions we can, but we don't always have all the information we might need. So my mission is to share that information as widely as I can. Um, I mean, uh, very grateful for that, I would say. I mean, a lot of what you do is also kind of, I mean, public service, demystifying publishing process, sharing information. So it's, yeah, it's especially, I mean, if you are, if uh, the listeners, if you're not uh, subscribed to Laura's newsletter, um, uh, it's weekly information about publishing and it's, yeah, it's wonderful to read those things, which I would have never learned elsewhere. Thank you. I'm so glad that it's helping people in that way. Yeah, definitely. Um, and can you also tell us a, li a little bit about your transition from academia to this business? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I got a PhD in communication. Um, I graduated in 2010. Um, I was on the job market for several years. I had a three-year visiting assistant professorship um, from 2011 to 2014. Um, and, you know, the job search didn't really go anywhere. And, uh, you know, all the while I was teaching, I was also, you know, writing and publishing my own first book based on my dissertation. Um, and I was working for a journal editing, um, like the commentary and book reviews section. So I was working directly with authors uh, pretty constantly because we put out six issues a year. Um, and I really enjoyed that work. Uh, and it, it, mm. the, the kind of feedback I got from working directly with authors was a bit different than you get from like working with undergraduate students. Um, people were just like so grateful uh, because they weren't getting that kind of like hands-on editing um, and feedback in their, you know, in the rest of their uh, writing careers. And 
and then you know we were seeing the results so immediately because we had a quick turnaround on the journal so you know you'd help someone write their work we'd get it published it would go out and they would you know have something for their cv and they would get engagement from readers so um i kind of was like oh what if i could do that full time could hmm. i get paid to do that i mean i got paid by the journal but it was barely <laughs> barely paid um so it was just a little bit of a leap of faith experiment kind of thing to see like, okay, could I go freelance and actually make an income from this? Um, and it, it took a couple years to build it up to where it, you know, was replacing the income I had from teaching. Um, but I eventually got there and, and it's been, uh, you know, I, w I would never go back now. You know, I feel <laughs> like I found what I meant to do and, um, I'm really happy with where I am. Mm. Um, and um, how was your relationship to your own writing when you were more on the academia side? Oh. <laughs> um, I think I'm one of those people who was always a good writer, always enjoyed writing. You know, I wrote for like my high school literary magazine and my college literary <laughs> magazine. And then grad school sucked all the joy out of it. Because, <laughs> um, you know, it just... it. And I'm sure it was completely mental of just this idea that the stakes are higher. You always feel like you don't, or I always felt like I didn't know enough. Um, what were people going to judge me for once it was published? What kind of criticism was I going to get? Um, so, so yeah, I would say I, I did not enjoy writing very much by the time I finished grad school. Writing my first book was suffering. It was, I didn't enjoy oh. it. Um, but I would say that my relation to it changed a lot when I started my business and started doing the kind of writing I do now, which is much more like mm -hmm. how to and advice. Um, and that just feels like it comes from a more natural place. Um, mm -hmm. It's still, you know, I still sometimes worry about how it will be received, um, which I think is important. You should think about how your readers will experience what you put out. Um, but it doesn't feel like the struggle that academic writing always felt like for mm -hmm. me. Yeah, I mean, also as a dissertation writer at the moment, I completely relate to uh, yeah. the joy being sucked out of the process. Yeah, which is a shame. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and then, uh, I mean, you started working with clients, but now you're also not really working with clients, right? You, I mean, you run these programs, rather. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I consider the people who do my programs to be my clients. I mean, I still no, feel like course. I'm there to serve them and, and help them with their journey. But it, I um, am, have wound down all of my one-on-one -on -one developmental editing work. I have one person who's still hanging out. We're finishing his book manuscript, um, which is hmm. going to be really great when it comes out, hopefully next year. Um, but uh, yeah, so now it's a little bit, it, it, it's, it's less, I would say, working with like a full book manuscript and more working with the people um, mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, polish a pretty specific document, like their book proposal mm -hmm. um, and, and help them reach their goals in that way. And can you tell us a bit about the programs you're running on Manuscript Works right now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so my main one is the Book Proposal Accelerator, um, and that is like a live um, it's kind of a course. I think of it more like a program because I don't think of the people in it as students exactly. <laughs> you know, I consider us all kind of, you know, on the same level and um, I'm just like sharing knowledge and facilitating something that they're already trying to do. Um, mm -hmm. 
And that is, uh, you know, we just go kind of step by step through the book proposal document. How do you make it? Um, who's going to be reading it? What are they expecting? And then I also share, you know, I've seen hundreds of these. I know the mistakes people tend to make. So let me help you not make those mistakes. Um, and then, you know, here are the things that can really bring it to the next level and really make it land with a publisher. So I share all those kinds of tips. And then I give direct feedback on people's drafts as they're working on them. Um, so that that's the accelerator program. But because I give that direct feedback, I have to limit the capacity of that one because it's mm -hmm. just me. So I also have a self-paced program um, that's called the Shortcut, which is it's all the same exact material as the accelerator, but just no feedback from me. Mm -hmm. um, so that's for people who want to work on their own, don't want to be in a group setting, want to power through it in two weeks or want to take three months or however long their schedule will allow to work on it. And I mean, I'm also enrolled in your developmental editing program. Yes, uh, yeah. How, how, did, how did you decide to like also uh, educate future developmental editors? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I just was a de developmental editor. I was kind of involved in like the Facebook groups with other editors. And then someone from the Editorial Freelancer Association um, reached out to me and said, oh, we want to offer a course on this you should teach it. I was like, I don't know that I should teach it. Like I'm just, <laughs> I just started this a few years ago. Um, but then when I sat down to do the curriculum, I'm like, oh yeah, I guess I could teach this. Um, so, you know, I created that course through the editorial freelancers association, um, and then taught it two years in a row had, you know, 60 some editors come through it and it, it felt really successful. I was, I was seeing people's work. They were able to get feedback on their editing, um, mm -hmm. which is something that is, in my own experience, like the, the, the project of going freelance is very isolating. You don't really necessarily have other people monitoring what you're doing. Um, the only feedback you might get is from your clients who, if they're happy, that's very good, but they don't necessarily know what, what good editing is. So, hmm. um, this was an opportunity to work with people who were who wanted that kind of feedback on their editing work and I was seeing that people were doing quite well with the lessons on it so um, that that made me feel like the course was a success so then um, the past couple years I um, have just offered it as a self-paced program mm -hmm. so I haven't been able to do it live just because of other things in my schedule but I just wanted to put the material out there for people who did want a way to learn um, about this process. And I share my own, like examples of my own editing, uh, which is another thing that when you go freelance, it's very hard to find. There's no access to that. Um, and it can feel awkward to ask somebody to share it with you um, if they are also an editor. Um, so I think that is maybe one of the most valuable parts of the course. I don't know what your experience with it has been, but just seeing like, what does it look like that, to communicate with a client, to mark up their work to send them an editorial assessment um so yeah so that that's what that course is mm -hmm. i mean i'm not there yet so i, I oh. can't comment on, <laughs> comment on that but uh i'm really looking forward to finishing the course yeah uh, yeah going through those materials because i i also kind of jumped into this without having any prior training in this right but yeah um i learn on the way and yeah it's 
seems to work fine for my clients so far. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely, there's a learning curve to it and just kind of trial and error and hopefully not too many errors. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. And can you also tell us a bit about the process of the coming out of the book proposal book? Like how, what's the story behind it? How did it come about? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, it all started, I'd say about four years into my editing business, maybe three and a half. Uh, and I had been working one-on-one -on -one with clients, as I said, and I was seeing um, the ones who were working on book proposals, I was giving them kind of similar advice across the board. You know, people were kind of running into the same issues, having the same gaps in their knowledge about what this document is actually supposed to be. Um, and I experienced that myself when I was writing my first book. Um, so I just, I opened like a word document that was like book proposal feedback compiled. And it was just like, I went through all the letters I had written to clients and saw like, what, what am I saying over and over again? Hmm. So I would copy and paste it into that document. And it ended up being like, I don't know, a 20 page document. Maybe it was like 10 pages. Um, and I was like, okay, I, I need to like share this with people so that they could just, instead of you know, people who can't afford to pay me to read their proposal and give them feedback, mm -hmm. you know, could still benefit from this information. Um, so then I was like, how do I do that? Um, and I thought of like different, different things. Um, and I finally landed on, well, maybe I could do a course kind of, or a program, um, which ended up becoming the book proposal accelerator. And then I also, um, started an email newsletter, around that time um, where I would just like share the stuff in the newsletter. And I actually had an editor from a university press reach out to me to say, would you ever be interested in writing a book? And I was like, yeah, of course I have thought about writing a book uh, many times. I don't know, you know, is there really a need for another book about publishing? You know, there are great ones that already exist out there. Um, and, and he said, there are good ones that exist, but the market for it, the readership for it is even bigger than the ones that are already there. You know, like there's always room for another voice on this. And, you know, you have a specific voice that I think is, you know, appealing. So um, then I was like, oh, okay, I guess I could write this book. So I, I took the um, book proposal accelerator curriculum and wrote a book proposal based on that. I didn't have the full manuscript written. Um, and I sent it both to that um, off, uh, editor who had reached out to me initially and to a couple other places because I had always thought about different presses I might want to work with. Um, so I didn't, I didn't want to lock into just one at that point. Um, and uh, then that, that, that's kind of how the book idea originated. And um, from there, you know, a couple different places were very interested. Um, Princeton just ended up seeming like the the best um, home for the book, given that they were starting the Skills for Scholars series. Um, the editor there was super supportive and enthusiastic. Um, I think he likes the book more than I do, for sure. <laughs> um, so it, it just felt like the right fit there. Um, and it, it has been just a really wonderful experience working with Princeton and um, seeing the book get out into the world that, you know, I do a lot of my own promotion just because I'm already doing that. I run a business. This is what I do. Um, but they've been really supportive in that and also had their own ways that they've helped me. Well, that sounds wonderful. Um, 
And I mean, speaking of the right fits, you always also in your advice to other authors, like you talk about this a lot, like finding a right fit for 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 your book. And it's not about like uh, how brilliant your book is, it's, right. but it's also about like where it goes. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that as well? Yeah, I mean, I'll say as far as the the brilliance thing, hmm. um, you know, very few books are really brilliant, right? I mean, <laughs> we might read many great academic books, but, you know, most of what gets published is not going to change your entire worldview or your world or anything. Um, so I would say throw that uh, bar out the window if you're writing a book, especially if you're writing your first book, uh, does not need to be brilliant. It just needs to make some kind of contribution um, to some kind of readership. It doesn't have to be a huge readership, especially if we're talking about an academic book. Um, it could just be, you know, several hundred people who are in a particular field or studying a particular topic. Um, and then the key is to just find which publishers are already in contact with those kinds of readers. Um, that's the publisher who's going to be most likely to want to acquire your book because um, they, they already have the, um, the marketing and the communications apparatus in place to reach the readers that you want to reach. So it's almost like you're kind of just stepping into that um, and in a natural kind of way. So um, that I think is probably the number one most important thing you can do to at least get the contract and get the book off the ground is, is figure out who can help you reach the readers that your book would appeal to. Yeah. But it's also wonderful to hear someone say uh, that your book is not gonna, is not, it, it doesn't have to change the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, also because I mean, right now I'm writing my dissertation and what the hopes of like, it's going to turn into a book in the future. Uh, do you also like have advice for especially first time authors trying to publish their books? Like what are the things that you see most commonly that these authors needs to hear? Uh, yeah, there, people so turning many, their dissertations. Into but I'm books. gonna I'm gonna try yeah. and uh, condense it or or think of what <laughs> comes into my mind first. I mean, I think one thing that I think people need to hear is like you don't need to do too much with that first book. I think people, when you've been writing a dissertation, you've got like all these ideas of like how you want to be in the world and what contribution you want to make and how you want to be received in your field, and a lot of times that's it's more than you can fit in one book in a reasonable way in a book that's going to be uh, readable and coherent um, and marketable. So, you know, I, I would say, you know, maybe try to think long-term over your publishing career and then think about, okay, what circumscribed set of things can I achieve with book one um, and, and keep, keep the bar manageable there. It's better to be, I think, really well-known and strongly identified with something simple or um, I, I don't know what the right word is, not necessarily simple, but, um, you know, contained than to like try to be known for everything or for, you know, all of the brilliant ideas you have in your head or that you tried to pack into your dissertation. Um, it's just simply going to be harder to communicate all of that to a readership. Um, so your best bet is to 
get in, get your foot in the door with the smaller idea. Then people come to know you, come to know you as a thinker. Then you have the room to expand Mm. and, and experiment with your ideas and hone your voice and all of that. Um, And I mean, also uh, thinking about how you, Basically, as what as I said, how you kind of do service to scholarly community by sharing this information. I mean, a, a lot of what you do to me seems like really demystifying demystifying the publishing process, and um, and I also like heard you or also read uh, things that you've written about um, how. I mean, I, I would say. I don't know if I'm reaching too much, but I would say this is kind of a, also there's. A, tone of social justice to what you're doing because i mean it's so it's about access who has access to this information can you tell us a bit about that as well yeah um yeah i mean i think you kind of summed it up (laughs) um (laughs) i don't don't know how how much to expand on that i mean i think you know that i i start off like all of my webinars um kind of explaining my like why i'm doing what i'm doing um, which is that to kind of understand academia and the, the publishing world as a place where, um, cultural capital and social capital are, you know, they're the currency that can make, can give you that access to, um, just to understanding how it works. Also, understanding what's expected of you, um, understanding what the people who are, you know, immersed in that habitus, if we want, if we want to get get there, um, uh, you know, what their expectations are, whether they are right or good expectations, I'm not necessarily going to comment on, but understanding that those are the people you're going to be dealing with and those are the expectations you're going to be coming up against um, if you are trying to publish in this um, ecosystem. And so, uh, you know, as somebody who really didn't feel like I knew how to access that when I was, um, you know, a first-time author, you know, I had a PhD, it was from a good institution, but I still didn't really feel like I belonged or like I, you know, understood the norms. Um, and, and it just was like such an uncomfortable feeling um, that I guess I just don't want other people to have to feel that way. Um, and, and of course, you know, as with any kind of cultural capital, it's unevenly distributed. Um, and, and there are people who actively gatekeep to keep the knowledge from people that they don't feel should belong. Um, and so I'm kind of trying to do the opposite of that. Like just put it out there, make it as public as possible, make it as accessible as possible. Um, and people may still choose not to use it or not to participate in this system, mm-hmm. which I also respect as well. Um, but uh, it's, you know, it's kind of there if you want it and you need it and, and your goals um, mean that you want to strategically navigate the system. Hmm. And um, did it also come out in your one one on one relationship with clients like these issues? 
that's a good that's a good question um a bit i mean i will say all the clients who i've worked with which is a self-selecting group now these are people who feel that they need some kind of help right because they're coming to an editor um for assistance. So there might, I'm sure there's people out there who think they're above that um, or who don't, who don't need that kind of assistance and that's fine. Um, but I will say that the people I've worked with across the board have all had the same insecurities and the same, hmm. um, maybe not the same insecurities, but similar types of insecurities or worries about access um, or anxieties. And, and I can't say that that's only restricted to women or um people of color. I, that it's, it's all the people that I've worked with. Um, but I will say that I have had clients who were, um, for example, like a woman of color who met with an editor and just felt complete, an editor from a press and just felt like completely talked down to, dismissed, um, treated as sort of not important. And she couldn't help but wonder if that was because she was a young woman of color. We won't, we can't know. Maybe that editor treats everyone like that. But hmm. when you're coming into that, you know, when you're coming into the process with that subject position, that's a question in your head that it's not in the heads of the white men who are coming into that um, situation. So um, I guess what I am trying to do is talk about what's normal in this sphere um talk about how what it looks like to be treated with respect as an author so that you will at least know are you being treated normally or are you being treated differently um is this something that is just like the way the system works or is this a particular editor being really gatekeepery with you um and 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 i also want people to understand the power they hold in the author, editor, author, publisher relationship. Um, because as an author, you have something that publishers need. So while it can feel like you are sort of at their mercy, um, especially if you're like trying to aim for a particular publisher um, that feels important to you, then you might kind of be stuck with however that editor treats you. Um, but I want to help people understand that there are options. You do deserve to be treated with respect. Um, there are people in the publishing world who are, you know, more committed to social justice than others. So, um, you know, I hope people feel able to seek those people out and, and find a publishing experience that doesn't feel like shit, <laughs> like so much of academia does. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, and I mean, I, I know you also, uh, Knit. Yes, I'm a knitter. <laughs> and uh, I was wondering, like, if that's something you've been doing since uh, you've been in academia. Because I mean, knitting for me is the is is a practice that keeps up, uh, like that sustains my writing in a way. Oh, interesting. It it's not. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I have this free space of mind when I knit. Then I can have that energy channel to what I write. Uh, do you? Is what kind of relationship do you have with your knitting? Oh yeah, that's interesting. Or do you have do you have other um, things that sustain your work or writing? Yeah, so I would say the knitting to me is very separate. Um, I've been doing it since before I was even in grad school, <laughs> um, and and I would say I've gotten 
much more into it over the last couple of years, especially since the pandemic. And I've become much more aware of it as like an anxiety, uh, like just a thing I turn to to pick up when I just like kind of need to expend some energy. Um, especially also being a parent, it's like a, a little, you know, like a little distraction, I guess. Um, but I would say for the writing, for me, that's what sustains that more is I would say more physical activity than hmm. knitting. Um, you know, I try to take a walk every day and I listen to podcasts on my walk. I listen to, you know, podcasts about publishing, about writing and about, you know, small business, like running a business. Um, and those, that's kind of where I do my thinking that kind of feeds back, I would say into like the newsletter and the workshops and the other things that I do. And do you have any suggestions for us on podcast about writing and publishing? Oh, um, any favorites you have? Yeah. Well, there's one that's new. It's brand new that I've been really enjoying called slush. Um, and I, I think slush pod is their Twitter handle. I'm not hmm. completely certain. Um, but that it's about trade publishing. Um, but it's, it's kind of an early career person in trade publishing who, um, is just trying to like demystify what that industry is, hmm. um, which is work that is going on elsewhere. You know, if you go to like Jane Friedman's, um, resources, she's a very well-established person who writes about the publishing industry. Um, so I think she, she's also very helpful, but the, the podcast, it's kind of funny and, um, just, it's uh, just a fun listen. I also listen to print run, which is to literary agents, um, again, in the trade publishing world. So it's not really academic publishing, um, but I think it's really helpful to understand the trade publishing world, to understand the ways that academic publishing is different, but also similar. Um, I think we think it's exceptional, um, like, oh, you don't get paid in academic publishing, but all the money's in trade publishing. And it's like, no, there's no money for authors anywhere. <laughs> um, only the superstars are getting the money. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I enjoy those two. Um, and then, you know, if, talking about academic publishing, I mean, of course, all the New Books Network podcasts uh, are there. And The Hedgehog and the Fox um, sometimes talks to authors, but the episodes I really enjoy are where he talks to um, publishers. So he talks to mm -hmm. editors and directors of university presses. Um, and that, that was, in fact, you know, listening to Christy Henry on his podcast, who is the director of Princeton University Press, that kind of clinched my decision to publish with them. You know, she just um, seems to have a really good vision for academic publishing. And um, and I will say she's exactly like that in person. She's been extremely supportive. Um, hmm. And just a pleasure to work with. Thanks for the suggestions. Sure. Um, and do you have a, a new book coming or like a new project or what, what are you up to nowadays? Yeah. So, I mean, of course my editor is like, so what's the next book? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> um, because the, I mean, the, the process of doing the book proposal book was, it felt really easy because I was thinking in a mode that comes maybe more naturally to me than the writing even, which is teaching. Um, you know, I had created the program first. So I think if I have another book, it will come out of something that I'm going to develop first to do directly with authors. Um, mm. So yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm thinking about different things, but um, 
I don't, not, not sure where it's going to go next. I, mm-hmm. I would love to do like a DIY developmental editing book um, because developmental oh. editing is so expensive because, you know, people like yourself, you have to make a living. So you have to charge, you know, appropriately for your time, which does make it inaccessible for a lot of people. Um, so it would be cool, I think, if there was a book out there that people could use to do it themselves. I'm not sure it's possible. I haven't <laughs> figured out what that would even look like um, because it does feel like such a unique experience with each manuscript you're working on. So I don't know that it could be kind of turned into a formula the way that a book proposal could be. Um, but I'm thinking about it. We'll see. Yeah. Oh, well, that's very exciting. And also, I mean, uh, I I take great pleasure in working with other people's texts. But when it comes to my writing, I I right. go blind to all the things that I right. kind of tell tell others about about what to do and whatnot. So it would be very interesting to be able to do this. Maybe maybe through a book, it would be possible. Right? Yeah, to kind of give yourself distance from it through like exercises yeah. or something. But I don't know. That I think that's a long <laughs> way off. If it's coming, it's a long way off. Okay. Okay. Uh, and I mean. Uh, I am very curious about, about your Jeopardy experience. <laughs> <laughs> sure, we can talk about it. Uh, how did you decide to join? And and you won two times, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right? two-time champ. Um, yeah. Well, I've been taking the online test for Jeopardy since the, er- the mid-2000s. Um, you mm-hmm. know, once I moved to Los Angeles for grad school, um, Okay, so I, maybe people realize this. I didn't realize it at the time, but like Jeopardy does not pay for the contestants to go travel to the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you make it on the show, it's all on your own dime, and that's what the second and third place prizes are meant to cover. So if you are third place, it's a thousand bucks. That's supposed to cover your whatever costs you incurred to go on Jeopardy, right? So I was a grad student in Los Angeles, and I'm like, it cost me nothing to get to Los Angeles <laughs> to film Jeopardy. So it might be a free thousand dollars. Let me just try. Um, mm. And I actually got an audition when I was in grad school, like at 2007, maybe, but I did not get the call back uh, to come be on the show at that point. Um, but I kept taking the online test, um, and I moved to New York for. 10 years. I kept taking the test. Um, (laughs) And then finally, I took the test in 2020. And I moved back to Los Angeles in 2020. And the week we moved back, I got the email saying, (laughs) you're making it to the next round. Um, And I had put Los Angeles as my audition city because I knew I was going to be moving back. (laughs) Um, And this was so this was like the height of COVID. So people were not flying in to audition anymore. Um, So they were doing all the auditions over Zoom. Um, And the, you know, there's like a second round test. So after you take the online test, you have to take one that's like proctored to make sure you're not cheating or something. Um, So so they were really looking for people who are based in Los Angeles, who they could kind of count on to be able to make it to a taping. So I, I think that helped me kind of get get to the next round. Um, so I did that test. Then there's a, a practice uh, game that you, it was over Zoom, you know, and the before times it was in person. Um, and and you just have to like show some personality. There's a little, you know, they do the little chit chat portion, which was always the thing I was most terrified of. You know, <laughs> Alex just eviscerating me. Um, but I made it through that. And then I got the call uh, to come 
tape. Uh, but sadly, this was right after Alex Trebek passed away. So mm. I did not get to play in a game with him. But um, yeah, so I went to the taping, made it on the show, won two games. It was like, you know, one of the best things I've ever done in my life. So it's kind of all, <laughs> all downhill from there. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it sounds wonderful. Like, it's such, such a thrill as well. Yeah. Um, well, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. It was, it was Thanks for having such me. a pleasure having this conversation with you. Um, and this is Academics Right. My name is Armand Childers, and until next time. <laughs>